Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to the London School of Economics. We're delighted today uh, to have um, Judy Cheng Hopkins, uh, who is the United uh, Nations Assistant Secretary General for Peace Building Support since 2009. Um, she's got an amazingly broad uh, career within the UN system, and unusually for um, senior officials within the UN system, she's experienced for a number of different uh, agencies. She was previously the uh, Assistant High Commissioner for Refugees in China of operations um, in uh, 118 countries, Um, so uh, no tall order there really. Um, She was also the director of the Asia Bureau and the Balkans uh, at the World Food Programme and has also served in the UN Development Programme in Africa for over 10 years as well. She's got a master's degree in international affairs uh, from SEPA at uh, Columbia University and um, in 2011 she was listed by Forbes as one of the 10 most powerful women at the United uh, Nations. Um, Judy, we're delighted to have you uh, talk today, so welcome. Um, the subject of the talk is um, peace building, um, and uh, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, peace building as a phrase has become something of a buzzword over the past 15 years or so. Um, there are hugely divergent views on what peace building is uh, and what it entails in practical terms. And the UN isn't exempt from uh, a sense of uh, uncertainty, I think it's fair to say, uh, divergent interpretations uh, and misunderstandings as to precisely um, what it is conceptually as well as uh, in practical uh, terms. Um, Judy will try to give us an outline of the concept of peace building as it is done in in practice, its practical significance uh, and how it's translated into operational activity and the kind of challenges uh, that that poses with a particular focus on the work and engagement of the UN Peace Building Commission and the Peace Building Fund which finances Uh, the peace-building activities of UN agencies, funds and programmes in fragile states around the world. Judy, um, welcome. Thank you. And uh, over to you. Thank you. Well, good evening to everybody. Very happy to be here. Um, Actually, this is unusual. I do a lot of talks, but in the US, closer to home, closer to where I'm based. So, in fact, this is uh, probably one of my first external ventures um, to, to an academic institution, so I'm very happy to be here. Uh, actually, from here, actually, I go, I go to The Hague, uh, to basically to do the same thing. So obviously, there must be a growing interest in this area called peace building. And I hope tonight, I hope that I can clarify what it is that what we mean by peace building, uh, both conceptually as well as on the ground, what, what activities consist, it consists of, what makes up peace building on the ground. And then why, why is peace building important? Why all of a sudden this interest and the importance? So um, if you don't mind, I'll stand because I'd much rather. Actually, yeah. So um, as I said, so I'll, I'll put peace building in the UN context. Why is it important? And then I'm going I'm to actually share a secret with you. This is my, my latest uh, uh, um, spiel, which is that I feel that in this whole area of peace building, there's one missing link. Uh, I bet you can figure out what it is, but uh, I will get to it towards the end of, of how we're missing out uh, great opportunities because we're missing one segment of society. So first, 
Um, you know, this is a, a bad depiction, but we, we really didn't know how to do a, a zigzag. On a, it was difficult to do a zigzag uh, on, on PowerPoint. But this is basically to show you the stages of UN involvement in a post-conflict setting. Um, so, so one end of continuum is war, and then the other one is sustainable peace. And the reason it's squiggly is because it's never, never a straight line. Never a straight line. It's always two steps forward, three steps back, or even worse. Uh, and likewise, the UN interventions in the bottom follow the same trajectory. So as you know, in the worst-case scenarios, humanitarian aid then takes you know, m most importance because, because it's about saving lives. And then, um, and then peacemaking and, and mediation, you know, when, when the warring parties are, are ready to, 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 to consider laying down arms, then, then peacemaking comes in. And then, uh, as you all know, depending on, um, uh, you know, it really depends on the Security Council, the, the Security Council of the UN, um, um, gives a mandate for a peace, peacekeeping mission, approves the budget, so we, we you know, normally have ideas about the kinds of troops we need and and the mandate of that peace building, peacekeeping mission is very, very important. The mandate, uh, and we can get into that later, whether it's just a, it's a robust mandate or it's a very, a very uh, sort of passive mandate. And I'm sure you've read about stories about when we've gotten in trouble with the media a lot of times with the so-called passive mandates. And then uh, peace building, again, is not a straight line, so peace building takes place when the opportunities exist and then things fall apart again. And then we're back to peacemaking, and then things go well for a while, and then we try again to do some, uh, you know, national reconciliation, which is peace building. And then, um, and then the happy day comes when it's about all over, and it, the country becomes a normal developing country. And one country that is on that tra trajectory today is actually Sierra Leone. And actually, I'm here now. I'm supposed to be there actually with the Secretary General, who is actually there to celebrate with them the departure of UNIPSIL, which is the UN mission, um, and in recognition of Sierra Leone being a normal developing country. I, I hope I don't bite, eat my words, uh, but but uh, you might be interested that this is thanks in large part to the UK's involvement. The UK is a big big actor in Sierra Leone, has invested millions, if not billions in police, in, in security sector reform, et cetera, rule of law, uh, and, and that has led to the happy situation today. So um, a lot of people know what peacekeeping is because of the iconic blue helmets. You watch them on BBC, and, um, so, but people don't really know what peace building is. So maybe just a, a very quick attempt. You know, the, the peacekeeping is there to stabilize uh, conflict areas. You know, um, but the key is, the big question is, is there a peace to keep? Uh, if there is a peace to keep, i.e. Um, the situation um, could, could help with the, with, the, with the peacekeeping mission, with the blue helmets, to stabilize the situation, then uh, we can say that um, then it's worth, worthwhile. But a lot of times, as you've seen in, in the media lately, um, you know, things fall apart again, and then a lot of people question then what peace is there to keep. But nonetheless, uh, their main job is to stabilize the situation. Stabilize the situation, and, um, and now, I think, uh, increasingly, um, uh, in, you know, I don't know if you all know the work of Mr. Lakda Brahimi. He, uh, he's the godfather, so to speak, of integrated missions. You know, back in the old days, it was very simplistic. It, were, it was soldiers standing in the border, you know, guarding between, between states or even intrastate, and that's all they did. 
but now we've moved towards more integrated, meaning there's much more emphasis on civilians, civilian capacities, and dealing with the civilian side, not, not just the military, not just the soldiers. Um, so today, there are 15 such peacekeeping missions around the world, and 13 special political missions with envoys and special advisors, etc. Um, you know, I'm they, they are not inexpensive, and in fact, that's a, usually a, a major problem. Is the peacekeeping budget alone is about eight billion dollars a year? It costs the international community eight billion dollars a year, and these are all um, assessed budgets. These are not voluntary contributions, like you know, like with other funds and programs. These are assessed. So you can imagine uh, the permanent five members of Security Council a lot of times are the one to put the brakes on, i.e. US and UK, because, um, because these budgets just go out of whack um, with, some, with some missions costing to, by today billions, really billions and billions. Now, peace building is much more about uh, a longer term, coming up a longer term solution. Meaning that once uh, the situation has stabilized, and as I said, again, it's not uh, linear, but once it's stabilized, then maybe we should start thinking about investing in the state, you know, restarting the state, uh, making, uh, making security sector, the security sector, you know, doing security sector reform. Maybe it's time to, to look at the army, look at the size of the army, the professionalism of the army, and that's what we, we call security sector reform as well as um, you know, demobilizing ex-combatants and insurgents. How do we reintegrate them back into society so that, um, so that the peace becomes uh, you know, more durable? So um, it lays the foundations for, for economic recovery and development, and it builds institutions. You know, I wouldn't say it's, it's long-term institutional, but it's, it's starting the process. It lays the, the groundwork for institution building and for infrastructures and starts to, to try and build capacities. Um, um, and also it, it tries to root out the root causes of conflict and we'll go into that in a while. So why is peace building important? Now that I've explained a little bit, why is it important? Okay, first the good news. The good news is there seem to be less wars, fewer coups and more democracies in recent times. Now, um, this is not including the Arab Spring or the so-called Arab Awakening uh, which we can cover separately. But that aside, uh, and, and in any event, we're talking about maybe four or five countries in that category. But by and large, if you look globally at the world, um, you can see the categories, democracies. In 1946, there were 20 democracies, as measured by free and fair elections every four or five years. You know, that's that kind of definition. But today, we are now close to 100 democracies. When you look at Latin America in the bad old days of the 70s and 80s, when there were coups after coup after coup, you remember reading about it. There were 30 coup d'etats in, in, the, in, the, in the 70s. And then to, and since 1990, there have been three, so it's hardly any. Even in Africa, it's reduced a lot. So, um, um, so 92, 21 countries were involved in interstate and civil conflict. And uh, basically today, we're talking about seven countries involved in interstate and civil conflict. Again, um, this, all these statistics did not take the Arab awakening into a, I, I use Arab awakening because, like Tom Friedman, I agree that there's nothing spring-like about the Arab Spring. So I think Arab awakening is a more apt term. But we can go into that later. But this, excluding that, the, the world uh, in, generally is a much brighter place. Okay, except for one sad little fact, which is state fragility persists. 
So, you know, and I'm sure you've read uh, Paul Collier, and he's the one who's actually, um, you know, came up with the statistics about 50% of countries relapse and all that. So the story here is just is, is really simple, that, that countries that fall into conflict very rarely get out of it definitively, at least in a, in a, in a, in a 10, 20 year period. They just keep falling back into conflict. So the, the phenomenon of relapse is a very common phenomenon, relapse, a country relapsing back. And that's why uh, this whole idea of freight fr- state fragility persisting. Um, and um, we'll go into that a little bit uh, uh, more, but, but obviously one of the major reasons is you know, that we haven't dealt with the root causes, uh, be it ethnic or other kinds of issues. Uh, very abject poverty usually is, is stated, but also very weak institutions. You know, institutions do not exist basically to provide anything, any 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 rule of law, any justice, any security, um, let alone uh, economic opportunities. So, um, um, so the state fragility persists. And why do they matter? You know, this is this is important, and um, I'm giving you obviously is a it's, it's an obvious obvious point here. They matter because they provide safe havens for terrorists, and for um, as you can see in the Afghanistan's, the Malis, Somalia, Yemen, just to name a few, and, and many more. Unfortunately, uh, in West Africa, unfortunately, the the Boko Haram in Nigeria, and then together with uh, the groups in Mali, um, have actually um, are, are creating um, mayhem mayhem in that part of the world. Uh, and then um, another f- new phenomenon is drug trafficking. You know, as, uh, as law enforcement, uh, as things tighten up in Central America, in, in Honduras and Guatemala and, uh, uh, and Colombia, Colombia being one major sort of relative moving the right direction trajectory, uh, a lot of the drug business is moving to Guinea-Bissau, uh, to even Guinea, even Sierra Leone, even Liberia. I was just in Guinea-Bissau actually just a few weeks ago, and and it's um, it's it's just amazing how everything is just interlinked, interlapped. You know, the military, the the drug lords, uh, uh, it's, it's all just interlinked. And um, and um, and as you can imagine, as we saw in the case of Afghanistan, once drugs get into the economy with such poverty, it's really hard to get out because the alternatives are basically non-existent or not comparable at all. To, to, to one's livelihood. So this is simply to, uh, to reiterate my point about violent conflict often recurs. Uh, as you can see, this, 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 this table, all it shows is that a country that has um, had no previous conflict has only, in, in, the year, in the 2000s, has only a 10% chance of going into conflict, whereas a country with, that, that has, goes in and out of conflict has a 90% chance of having conflict again. So this just proves the point. So, so in addition to all the ills I mentioned about, about, about conflict, um, you, know, uh, you know, harboring terrorism and drugs and all that, for the, for the local people, for indigenous people, they also create havoc because, uh, because, um, because it disrupts development. So we have 1.5 billion people to get today living in violence and conflict. 42 million people are displaced as a result. This, and, and this is, again, before the Syrian war. So this is, uh, the, uh, my friends here from the UNHCR, so they can update us on the statistics of 
of the numbers displaced from the Syrian conflict alone, both internally and externally as refugees. So um, uh, 42 displaced as a result, and poverty is 20% higher in conflict countries than non-conflict. And, you know, I, I bet you it's even higher. I think that's a World Bank statistic, but it's probably very conservative. I bet you it's a lot higher. So uh, countries with negligible or no violence, you've seen major declines in poverty. Uh, and the next table shows you that. Uh, you'll see that this, um, this uh, bottom line, which is orange, I believe, uh, you'll see that, um, uh, you see that uh, these countries with no violence or little violence seen a dramatic decline in poverty, dramatic decline. The, the countries that have some form of, of, of violence you know, um, have still declining, but, but not, not enough. And then the top line are the countries that go in and out of conflict, and unfortunately, you can, as you can see, poverty uh, never goes down in those countries. So what is the typical post-conflict country? You know, there are about, uh, depending on how you, you define them, I would say there are about between, between 25 or so countries uh, around the world today. I mean, we can go into that a little bit later. What you mean you know, is it countries that have generalized war throughout the whole country, or are you talking about countries like the Congo, the DRC, where Kinshasa is a normal capital city like any other normal African capital city? And yet in Goma and the Kivus, it's, 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 it's anarchy, it's raging hell you know, in, in the east. So, uh, but, um, but again, uh, writ, large, writ large, I would say there are about 25 to 30 such countries uh, that, that we define as, conflict and po as post-conflict. So... Um, so uh, uh, ordinary development challenges. Yeah, so you already know your typical development challenges. I'm sure, you, obviously, you do know uh, in a typical developing country. So uh, when you look at these countries going in, up, in and out of conflict, you compound that by hundreds of times, hundreds of times in every field, in every field, in, in employment generation, in education standards, in rule of law, in, in security. It, it's just compounded. Um, um, so here, uh, yeah, so, so a typical post-conflict country would have uh, military domination, unfortunately, you know, because a lot of times uh, they're, they're unstable uh, because of coups, and coups are, are done by military people, and, and usually there's military domination in these countries. Uh, strangely, these countries also tend to be rich in natural resources, uh, but there's a steep divide between those small, that small elite that has, has access to this wealth and the great majority of the population that has absolutely no such luck to, to access, whether it's uh, minerals or diamonds or oil uh, or, or bauxite or tin. Um, uh, but the, the sad fact is a lot of the countries that my fund, the Peace Building Fund, is aiding are countries that are potentially the richest Maybe in the world, even you know, if you if you take a country like Guinea, Guinea, you know, the, the known to have the most vast resources of tin and bauxite, tin and aluminum, sorry, in the world. I mean, in Guinea, um, you know, believe it or not, this is an anecdote, but you know, when when you walk out on, on the ground and basically and you rub your your, your feet onto the ground, um, you, you see black soil appearing. And that black soil is actually uh, ore. It's actually ore. That, that, so it's when you look at the map of the natural resources of Guinea, you look at the map that shows, it's not like other countries where you little spots and pockets here and there. It's literally almost generalized to the whole country. 
That's how rich these countries are and how unfortunate it is that they are so poor as a result of, of instability. Uh, also, a typical post-conflict countries usually has a land issue problem, and that is a vicious cycle. It's just, it's just a vicious cycle. You know, when, when you have war, uh, a country like Sierra Leone, um, it, you know, um, all whatever land titles there were, if there were, uh, have gone out the window because because the same piece of land has been sold, I don't know, five, ten, twenty, fifty times over. So uh, returning, you know, again, when I used to work with UNHCR, one big problem is returning refugees, that returning to their old areas, find that obviously other people have inhabited, it, you know, their, their place of, um, of residence, including, um, including showing papers to show that they own the land now. So there you go again. Obviously, there's going to be conflict. And um, weak institutions, as I said, almost no public services, you know, in a way... Um, a lot of countries that come out of uh, the humanitarian crisis, you know, see a sudden drop because suddenly all the NGOs that were providing some medical care and other such public services would have gone. So that usually that's a major problem. Uh, and then uh, high prevalence of corruption. That's one of the one of the unfortunately one of the. If you look at the transparency index, um, you see that almost all the countries at the rock bottom are, are actually in a post-conflict situation limited or no rule of law, and limited or no accountability, no transparency. And then, of course, the worst part is the youth bulge. You know, it's bad enough in most developing countries that you have a youth bulge, but if you look at the statistics of the post-conflict countries, the bulge is larger. You have countries where, you know, over 60 70% of the population is, is considered um, uh, in the youth uh, category, and, of course, uh, they, they have not been educated. I mean, the vicious cycle just works itself. They haven't been educated. As a result, they're not literate. As a result, they have no skills. So even in the best of circumstances, they're not able to hold on to jobs or at least to be offered a job. And so they're idle. And so they, they steal or they join an insurgency. And then there you go again. Uh, another movement, another insurgent movement starts. So, so this whole vicious cycle... It's, it's tragic, and, you know, and it really breaks your heart when you go to these countries, but I see these youths all the time, uh, and, and I, I just know what, what the short term is going to be like for them because of the lack of opportunities. So what is peace building? You know, this can be a very you know, sort of boring, didactic uh, subject, so I, I try to, 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 to spice it up a little bit. I don't know if uh, many of you understand the term schlep, but I come from New York where schlep is used very commonly. It's a, it's a Yiddish term with uh, German roots, uh, schleppen. And to schlep something is to, to, to do an artist task, you know, to carry something, a big sack, something heavy across the room. It's arduous, it's, it's, um, it's difficult, it's challenging. So from what I've just told you, you surely agree with me that peace building is a schlep. But then I found that uh, it's so convenient because it explains exactly what I'm going to tell you. And I don't want to have to have notes because I'll just have to go with the acronym and, and I can tell you what it is. So, so peace building, the first thing one peace building activity has to, to deal with is, is security and safety and human security. So a lot of the activities that we do that we fund from the peace building fund have, as I said, to do with security sector reform. You know, as I said, in a lot of these post-conflict conflict countries, the army is not only huge compared to the size of the population, huge. Some of them, the ratios are horrendous, but they tend to be top-heavy. Because why? It's the only job in town. 
there's, there's no private sector, there are no jobs. So um, once your ethnic group, for instance, gets into power and you get into the army, you would bring all your relatives into the army, right? And, and, the, and the closer the relative, the, the higher up they go. So it becomes overbloated, top-heavy, and unfortunately, um, and then when somebody else comes in again, they bring in yet the same, another group, and it just grows exponentially. And, uh, and in all these countries, all these countries, um, you really have to take a good hard look uh, at, at the security sector, not only because of the size, not only because of the drain on the economy, because they, they earn salaries, not only because of the drain, but the lack of professionalism, complete, they're the ones creating all the abuses. They're the ones, um, you know, uh, stealing and raping. So, so one has to always look at security sector reform. And then, as I said uh, earlier, DDR. DDR stands for, um, does anybody know? Demobilization, disarmament, and reintegration. So as I said, all these um, acts, all these insurgent movements you've seen in the papers, they tend to be young men, very young boys, all the insurgents. Because why? As I said, it's so easy to recruit. You just go into a village and, and basically somebody bent on creating mischief. It's not difficult to recruit these, these young men because they're idle. And, um, and um, so after the, after the, uh, the war, after, after you know, the peace, the first thing is you have to get them to lay down the arms. You have to disarm them. You have to demobilize them. You have to basically canton them. We bring to them into a cantonment. Um, and, and, um, and, and usually comes then some training, some uh, uh, reintegration activities. And, the, and the, the most impressive ones I've seen are usually public works programs because those are the only programs that can absorb thousands and thousands of youths. And we're not talking about giving jobs to, to 20 or 30 youth or 100 youth. We're talking about absorbing you know, uh, thousands and uh, a lot of times, a well-conceived public works program, and we can talk later about what I mean about well-conceived, can actually do wonders in, in getting these young men off the streets and, and hopefully into a more productive life. And then uh, uh, Schlepp, so that's S. And then C, civil society. You know, a lot of times, um, the reason that these countries went into what they went to in the first place is because of this you know, the, the small minority, these small elites that really didn't give a damn about the, the vast majority of the population. The, the, you know, talk about inclusion. I mean, there was absolutely none. They were not consulted, you know, nor informed of, of where the country is heading. So um, I think the lesson learned is, you know, now um, we have to take into consideration civil society concerns. You know, what their wishes are. At least communicate, at least reach out to civil society. And now, of course, you know, there are more and more civil society organizations coming up. So I don't think there's any country in the world, not even Central African Republic, that does not have, uh, you know, a good number of civil society organizations that have sprung up in, 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 in relation to some, to some crisis or other. And then, um, and, uh, for lack of a better word, healing. Uh, again, in a post-conflict situation, a lot of times, um, you know, uh, it's between ethnic groups, you heard about the horrendous stories in Central African Republic again, a country where Muslims and Christians used to live in relative harmony, but now the hatred is unbelievable, I mean, to the point of cannibalism, apparently, according to the press. Um, so, so uh, and as we know from the case of the Rwanda genocide, um, you, you, know, you cannot just pretend one peace times comes that everything will go away. There has to be a, a, an element of healing and and, and, um, and, and obviously in Rwanda, they did it probably the most effective way through this gachacha courts. 
because to try to try everybody through your formal court system, you clog it up for the next hundred years. So then they came up with a very, um, a very, um, a very uh, inventive way, which is uh, local community-based courts, where uh, where people were tried and some were actually rehabilitated. Some had to go to jail, but 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 some were actually released. But but the whole idea is you must give people a chance to confront each other, you know, and and for for the perpetrator to show remorse to the, to the community, and then maybe there's a chance that that you can get out of it. So healing. Is, is, is key, and there, a lot of the healing we do through national dialogues, uh, to national reconciliation processes, reparations, uh, you know, a lot of times when women have been so abused and raped and everything horrible done, I mean, there has to be some reparation, so reparation programs where you give uh, money, basically, um, and training, and, and, you know, and maybe a chance at, 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 uh, at some livelihood, that's, that's very key. Um, you know, a, a, a national... Um, National dialogue is very interesting also, um, like in the case of Yemen, we just finished uh, uh, you know, an epic national dialogue that took eight to, to ten months. And, and the whole idea is a country that was in a feudal state not too long ago suddenly supposedly has democracy. I mean, how do you expect a country that has such a high amount of literacy, such high literacy, to understand what it means to vote for someone. You know, I mean, there has to be a national dialogue. There has to be a civic education process. I mean, there's really no two ways about it. There has to be civic education. There has to be a chance for people to, to discuss the differences in, in a common setting. Uh, and, and then maybe you stand a little chance when the elections come for people to understand a little bit what, what this new day is all about, as opposed to just rushing into elections and then, and then you see what happens. In fact, elections now... Uh, is the bombshell. Elections is actually what sparks a, a new round of violence, as we've seen. Um, then uh, we have, uh, and then livelihoods. You know, obviously, again, if you want sustainable peace, people can't just go with, with absolutely no jobs and no income and, 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 and nothing. So, so there has to be um, an element of uh, restarting the economy, restarting jobs. You know, you know, it's really not rocket science. You know, when I went to Liberia in, 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 in Lofa County, you know, in peacetime, I hate to sound so simplistic, but I'm illustrating. Uh, in peacetime, uh, in, especially in regions that are rich in rainfall and agriculture potential is, is big, you know, one is able now uh, to plant because you don't plant in, in wartime because, because it's just attracting the, the, the soldiers or the insurgents to steal your food. So why would you plant? But uh, in peacetime, one is able to plant. And then if all goes well, you, you, you feed your family, and then you have surplus that you sell in the market. Then you suddenly have disposable income. And when you have disposable income, what do you do? You obviously need, after years of conflict, you need to repair your roof. You need a mason. You need a carpenter. You need to repair your bicycle. I mean, so that, that creates demand for all these services. So then, um, and it's just beautiful to see, uh, you know, through help of the international community, the UN and bilaterals, that these programs then start training, training people in all these fields. In, in Lofa County, in Liberia, the most popular store I went to was this blacksmith. Now, you know the blacksmith went out with a horse and carriage in the West, but, but nothing is thrown away in a society, in societies. Nothing is thrown, not, not the pail, not the, not the pail, I mean, not, not the axe, not, not the hole. Nothing is thrown, everything is repaired. Everything is repairable. And so the blacksmith is the most valuable person in that community. And so it was just amazing to see this queue uh, waiting for, for the services. So my point is simply that 
you know, uh, you don't have to look for Nike to come in to build a factory. A lot of it is actually in peacetime, creating services for, for the community, for each other, and then having some cash come into the economy and creating demand, and then, um, and then the, the virtuous cycle, the virtuous cycle uh, begins. Uh, empowerment of, of men and women. Again, in a lot of these situations, women and the youth have been completely marginalized. I'll come to that later, so I won't talk about it too long now. And so there has to be uh, space. There has to be space for this group because uh, otherwise we'll never have sustain sustainable peace. And then SHLEP, the last, uh, the last uh, word in the acronym is P, public administration and accountability. Again, in all these countries I'm talking about, um, uh, outside the capital city, there's no, no presence of the state, none. There are no roads even, so a lot of times, unfortunately, we have to fly by helicopter because there are no roads. But then there's no government. There's, there's not everything that you, uh, you take for granted, you know, a local tax office, a local uh, traffic uh, office, a local police. I mean, there's no such presence. People have been completely neglected uh, for, for, for decades. And so if the state wants to be, if the state wants to, to stay and be appreciated and the state wants to be a state for the people and to build the nation, then you have to have these services going out outside of the capital city. And I'm not just talking about health and education and police stations, courts of law, you know, justice. Um, so, so again, we can go into that later on, but, but we call that extension of state authority. There has to be an extension of state authority to cover as much of the territory as possible so that people identify with one state and the nation that does care. So uh, again, I'm not going to go too much into this. Uh, this you see on the left-hand column. You know, it's simplistic, but again, for illustration. So I'll show you what the root causes, the root causes of the conflict are, and then what some of the, some of the solutions are. It's, it's kind of hard for me to see here. So... Um, for instance, uh, you know, like I talked a lot about military domination and lack of professionalism, the army, you need security sector reform uh, here in, in the bottom, uh, poverty and lack of livelihoods, so we need uh, public service delivery, etc. So, so I've already been through a lot of that, but that simply is just to show you uh, the root causes and, and what 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 the activities that constitute peace building would have to look like. So how? Uh, in the UN, um, we have something that we call the UN peace building architecture. I'm not going to bore you too much with it unless you're interested in the Q&A section. But uh, in 2005, uh, the Security Council and the General Assembly established um, a new peace building architecture. And that is what I'm, I deal with daily. Uh, because there are three pillars of this new architecture. One pillar is the Peace Building Commission. This is a commission made up of member states uh, in, in the UN. Uh, a peace Building Fund. This is a fund I manage. It's about $100 million a year. And I'm very happy to say that the UK is my largest donor. Not only is it the largest, but they, they appraise us. And you know, you Brits, right? You're pretty tough when it comes to appraising people. Uh, but I'm very happy to say we got an A. Uh, the last time they appraised us, so then uh, we'll continue to enjoy uh, huge contributions from the UK, uh, Peace Building Fund. And then uh, the office that I had, the Peace Building Support Office, is both to manage the fund as well as to be the secretariat for the commission. Oh, wait. Um, 
this is not, not very interesting for you maybe, but these are just, what, what, as I said, to avoid relapse, our strategic entry points for the peace building. You know, um, yeah, and then as I said also, let's be very frank here, with these huge $8 billion a year in peacekeeping operations, I think the UN feels that it should go another step in terms of protecting that investment, right? Instead of just cutting and running uh, the minute things seem a little bit normal uh, and then leaving sort of very little behind, um, the, 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 the feeling is that with, with the peace-building presence in the form of peace-building fund, we can continue some of these things that, 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 um, you know, that need to be started, that need to be started, and then eventually... Um, if you know how the, uh, the international community UN works, and eventually the development partners would take in. You know, so it's like passing the baton in a way. You know, as, but bearing in mind it's not linear, but uh, for illustration purposes, I, I, I describe it that way. But it's like passing the baton in a way because um, a, a lot of uh, peace-building work is, after all, pre-development work. It's actually pre-investment. It's actually kick-starting, catalytic, uh, pre-development work, laying the foundation, laying the ground for development activities to take place. Um, okay, now the interesting point, the missing link. This is my, my latest. Um, so as you all know, and here obviously what I'm refer- who I'm referring to are women. You know, women are the ultimate victims of conflict. Um, as, you know, there's family rupture, so when conflict happens, a family breaks apart uh, because the men go to war, a lot of the husbands and sons are killed. Um, you know, there's a, um, a change of roles. Uh, suddenly, women become heads of households. You see that. Uh, in Rwanda, you know, even today, so many years after the genocide, in 2010, 33% of households are headed by women. In post-genocide, it was high. It was very high. Um, so, so then, the, the women-headed households, and can you imagine, I'm talking about rural women, most times illiterate, suddenly having to care for the whole family. You can imagine how difficult that is, as well as, uh, what's this, uh, and 28% of households uh, in Nepal, same thing in Nepal, are also headed by women in 2011. So that's the family rupture, is the change of roles, suddenly being responsible, but most horrendous of all is the sexual abuse and sexual violence, because as we see now, um, rape is being used as a weapon of war. You know, the, the, uh, the, the saying goes that a lot of times you want to destroy a family, you want to destroy a community, it's not so much killing the man, it's actually raping his daughter and his wife right in front of him, right in front of the whole family, and thus destroying the moral spirits um, and, 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 the, um, and, and, and the family, basically. So in the Congo, I'm sure you heard of this, uh, 200,000 uh, women and children have been raped in, in, in over a decade. Uh, in Sierra Leone, 64,000 uh, incidents of war-related sexual uh, violence. So, so that is um, horrendous. Women are the, the ultimate victims of conflict. But I think, um, I, think, uh, I think we're losing great opportunities if we stop the analysis there. If we stop there, we're losing out on a huge opportunity because women are also the ultimate agents of change. Women, just to look at women as, as victims and leave it there, I think is sinful when you look at these societies and these countries we deal with. Uh, and there's evidence to prove it. Um, you know, um, women, for, for one, uh, it, it's been, according to FAO, uh, 80% of food crops 
in, in the developing world, but especially in, in Africa, are, are done by women. So, so you can imagine that when you, you have peacetime and you're investing, you're investing in, in new seeds and better seeds and, 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 and better harvesting, uh, to, to bypass the women who are actually doing 80% of the job is ridiculous because they're the ones that will actually bring about uh, uh, um, better situations for the families. Uh, and then when you look at also how women uh, are involved in everyday peace building, and, and um, uh, the, the case of the Acholi women, I was on a, uh, on a panel once with uh, this head of the Acholi uh, a women's group uh, that actually, you know, that actually, in a way, chased out the Lord's Resistance Army from northern Uganda. You know, um, so, so the women took things into their own hands. And then, um, and then um, my favorite one, of course, is in Liberia. And I don't know how many of you have actually seen this, uh, this movie, uh, well, documentary called Pray Back the Devil. Has anybody seen that? If you can, you should really get a hold on it. You know, people, students of, of this subject matter. It's called Pray Back the Devil, and it traces um, the work of women uh, in, in Liberia that had had it with decades, with decades of civil war, and uh, decide to take things into their own hands. And actually, um, thanks to them and their actions in Ghana, that actually led to the conviction of Charles Taylor, uh, because they would not give up. So, um, so my point here is that uh, uh, women, women have, have, have this innate interest to keep the peace. Uh, they, they are the ones responsible. They're the, they're the fulcrum. They're the, uh, the embodiment of the family, the community. And, and so uh, not to invest in them as, the, as your entry point, as your agent for that change that you want to bring about is very short-sighted. Um, uh, women are also uh, interested in issues of, uh, you know, when, when women are, again, when be, women are, are, are elected to parliaments, you know, again, this is uh, empirically proven, they tend to vote for bills, for legislation that actually ensures physical, uh, physical safety, gender-based violence, uh, human development, poverty, as opposed to other topics that would interest the men. So it's not that the UN is oblivious uh, to the problem. It actually, it was... You know, these are the evolution of normative frameworks. By the way, that's a picture of the Security Council. So here are all the Security Council resolutions, starting from the year 2000, uh, the famous 1325 that I'm sure you've studied, Security Council Resolution 1325, which for the first time linked uh, women's uh, experiences of conflict to the maintenance of, uh, of peace and security. Uh, and, and, and acknowledge uh, rape. You know, I mean, you know, this... this this, this body of, um, you know, of basically men, I mean, um, words like rape were never uttered in the chambers of Security Council. But uh, I think 2000 saw, saw a big change because it got so, it, got, it, could, it could not be ignored anymore. It was, it was so bad. And then successively after that, there have been so many other resolutions. You look at all these resolutions, and each one sort of added a, a newer and more ambitious element on how we're going to deal with this problem. Of, of, uh, of women and how they suffer uh, during conflicts. Um, you know, this one, in fact, this latest one, 2013, emphasizes women's participation in conflict resolution and recovery. Um, but the problem is, um, it still very much focuses on women as victims. Um, and, and so, uh, 
my office together with the UN Women uh, in, uh, came up with this in 2010, uh, a seven-point action plan, which I'm not going to go into, but basically this tries to put our finger on the areas that women ought to be given a more prominent role, as opposed to leaving it very generic and very, very, very general. Uh, this, this tries to put your finger on it, and maybe one of the most controversial things that re- recommendation coming from this was was um, making sure that women also participated in public life, i.e. in politics, in parliament, and actually came up with an affirmative action figure of 30%. Um, that a lot of people debate should be 50% if women constitute 50% of society. Why, you know, so, but anyway, this was 30% as a compromise. So this goes into all the, you can actually read it online, uh, precisely what was recommended. And the Secretary General, by the way, has identified these seven points as, as um, priority areas for his second term. So, but despite all this, though, despite all that I've mentioned in terms of all the resolutions and all, I, I, I still have a big problem, and, and this is my latest uh, issue that, that I actually um, get into a lot of fights with people about, which is that peace building has an inbuilt bias. You know, it's a uh, revelation, you know, a revelation hit me that peace building has an inbuilt bias. Why is this simple? You know, women, you know, the, I told you already, the, the main preoccupation of any peace building is to stop relapse, is to avoid relapse because evidence shows that no conflict starts out of the clear blue sky. It actually comes as a result of many previous episodes of violence. But women are never the belligerents. You know, women never cause the conflicts, and women will never cause a relapse either. So as a result, a lot of our interventions, and I know because I'm paying for them, a lot of our interventions are actually um, not targeting women. They're targeting the soldiers, as I told you, they're targeting the youth, the young men who are recruited into insurgency movements. So, so there's an inbuilt bias, um, which, uh, be- because they're not belligerents, but that is short-sighted because that is not looking at the other side of the coin, which is the role that women can play. You know, uh, and, 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 and I shouldn't be saying this in public, but, but a lot of times when I do fight with um, some of my colleagues, you know, I mean, there, there is no evidence even to prove that the millions invested in security sector reform uh, and, and, and DDR is actually that sustainable and viable. You know, because, you know, because it's, it's not rocket science. It, you can only do uh, DDR, demobilizing your, your soldiers and, and doing SSR, only if, you, if that professionalism, if, if the army remains a professional uh, entity. And as you see in these countries, it seldom is. So a lot of times, all that you've spent may have gone to waste because they go back to their old ways anyway. So it's not as if it's so foolproof, so waterproof, so clear-cut. Uh, and I argue that people uh, uh, you know, uh, who are against the investing in women, I would argue that maybe it's a, even a bit more clear-cut, the, the causal relationship, the correlation between investing in them and having a semblance of community peace at least. So, um, so, so I'm, I'm actually on a, on a mission to, to, to prove that and actually uh, coming up with... Um, a new paradigm shift, a paradigm shift on how we deal with programming, how we identify programs that we want to fund. Uh, I, I'm opening the paradigm uh, to, to, so that women are included. Uh, so this, you, know, you may not be interested in, this is for programmatic people, so this is what I do with my people, the, the, what my new paradigm will consist of. 
Um, again, I've read. So this, uh, I told you about this famous um, uh, Liberian women. You know, they, they were winners of the Nobel Prize in 2011. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Slema Mowe. She's the she's the one who had the, the the civil society group. And of course, that's uh, Tawakul in, in Yemen. This is. Um, we can go into it in, in Q and A. I don't want to go on and on, but this is to show again um, uh, uh, women in parliament in, in different countries and what what the impacts seem to be once you have once you cross a critical mass, a, a certain threshold. Um, yeah. So this is my favorite story always of Rwanda. You know, Rwanda has the highest number of women in parliament, sixty four percent women in parliament. Uh, and and it's, no sec- it's no secret, it's no wonder that in a country that, where women hardly own land, that when you had this minimum critical, when you had this majority, a great majority of women in parliament, they passed land laws that actually favored women and actually brought about the situation where women actually own land today more than men do. The majority are still husband and wife married couples, but it, by women, land held by women alone versus land held by men alone, women exceed the men by far. Uh, Burundi is the same thing. When you have uh, 30% of women in parliament, then uh, sexual uh, violence becomes, uh, becomes uh, 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 the penal, uh, pe- penal crime. So basically, that's it. This is a picture of the women in Liberia in Ghana. Thank you. Um, what we'll do now is we have um, some 25 minutes or so for questions and answers. Um, what I'll do is I'll try and stack up questions. Um, oh, I better so, sit there so I can write down. So if you see me nod at you, it means I've got you stacked up. Um, what I'd like you to do is to keep questions fairly short and also introduce yourself as well. Um, uh, and that would be wonderful. If we start with um, the young lady here. <laughs> Not that I know Marike. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I'm Marike Shamiris. I work here at the London School of Economics. Um, I have to admit that I feel a little bit as if I've been hit by a train because I'm unsure whether I've just listened to a, a presentation by the United Nations or whether I've just listened to, the present, to a presentation of the U.S. State Department or indeed to a fairy tale because it seems to me as if there were so many points where what we heard is not so much what the U.N. is trying to address but actually how the U.N. thinks the world works. And I just want to pick a few examples to lead up to my question. Um, I I find it extremely confusing that the idea of civil society is mixed with oversight of the army, for example. I find it very confusing that the answer to young men left to their own devices, I think, was was your way of phrasing it, can be addressed by DDR, even though we have so much evidence that shows that actually DDR programs often leave men to their their own devices. I find it very confusing to say that women change things once they're in parliament, because all the evidence we have actually says they don't. This is one of the real puzzling things. So I was just wondering whether you could share with us a little bit the processes within the UN that you use to actually assess some of these approaches and how you reach these conclusions or whether ultimately they're based on how you would like things to work. Thank you. Um, Well, this one is pretty complicated, so... (laughs) 
or meaty. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would ask you, on the other hand, um, um, what evidence do you have that the contrary is true? Like, for instance, that uh, by having a certain percentage of women in parliament, that, that, that good things don't necessarily happen. I mean, you know, I've showed you the evidence uh, in, in the case of, 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 um, of Rwanda and Burundi. Um, so is there evidence on the other side to show that uh, that women do not necessarily, uh, 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 you know, a, a certain percentage of women in parliament do not necessarily bring about good. Um, you, you know, I, and and here I want to, you know, we had lots of debate about this uh, within within the UN with UN women, and um, and the reason, uh, as I said, that the thirty percent figure was arrived at is because you really do need that minimum critical mass. Anything less than that can be exactly what you refer to, can actually be, be, be self-defeating, because then you have a, such a small minority that they become, what's the word for it, um, token. They become the, the, the epitome, epitome of token. And then on top of it, the men get to justify that you, you have these women sitting in parliament. They, they sign on to this. So, so it becomes defeating, defeatist. So uh, that's why the, the whole criteria of a minimum critical mass so, so um, that's the one. And then a DDR, again, do you have evidence to prove that DDR um, doesn't work, that it makes the, the boys even more trouble, troublesome? I don't know. In my, visits, um, in my visits to the more successful DDR programs, um, I've actually seen uh, young men um, uh, you know, uh, gaining from the programs of the UN and gaining from the programs of not just the UN, but... The, the NGOs, the rest of the international community, um, uh, in terms of um, finding s- some livelihoods, finding some activity to do. I mean, as opposed to uh, to, to to fighting um, to, to fighting a war that that really does not exist anymore, that that brings that has no traction. Uh, in, 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 in the end, really, a lot of times, um, you know, people do get tired of war. The day will come, you know, sometimes it takes 100 years, as in your region, uh, but the day will come <laughs> when, 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 when people say, hey, what's the alternative? And I think, um, but, but if you're inferring that, that there have been many bad DDR programs, I couldn't agree more. There have been many bad DDR programs that sort of one-size-fits-all, that didn't take, um, were not sensitive to that context, and that was just throwing uh, good money after bad. Uh, but, but on the other hand, um, I have seen some that work as well. So was there a last point? Was there a last point, civil society? I, I think you've probably suffered enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, we've got questions stacking up. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll take uh, two from over here. And then I'll switch to some of the questions over here. So there's a gentleman here uh, and a short lady over there as well. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, I'm Hakan Sechkin Elgin from the... I work in the school as well. My question is more about trying to understand what exactly you mean by peace. All true, we talked about peace building, but I still don't know what you mean by peace and how far people's own self understandings and perceptions in conflict context about this comes into UN's understanding of peace. Thank you. 
Okay, thank you. And the lady there as well. If you can introduce yourself. Hi, um, I'm Sarah Jane. I'm also uh, a fellow at the LSE. Just to pick up on the point about women in uh, politics and parliament and talking about kind of evidence around it, um, I think there is quite a lot of interesting evidence actually to suggest that it is problematic to look at an essentialized perspective of women as, as necessarily or inherently uh, pro-peace or the fact that actually once they get into parliament there is A, such a thing as, as women's issues in particular and B, that women um, represent would be interested in backing those. And just to kind of, uh, if we're looking at sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the average at at the moment in 2010 was 20% of women in uh, cabinet positions, which is way above about the 16% average that you get worldwide. And yet actually, Che Do Nguankwa, Nguan Kwankwa, who's been uh, looking into this issue, would say that substantive representation of women's issues, and she does believe that you can uh, quantify that, hasn't been seen in, in sub, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And that's even in places like South Africa, where the cabinet representation is 41%, which is over what is often seen as the critical mass of 40% or 30%. If we're taking 30%, then it's also uh, Nigeria, you see 33% of women in the cabinet office. And again, we see those kind of repeated issues. So I think, I think it is a question that we do need to take seriously because I think there's a mounting amount of evidence, despite the great kind of work that's been done bringing in women into, uh, particularly into post-conflict countries through quotas, as has been seen in Rwanda, as has been seen in Uganda, uh, there is still kind of big questions that remain about what happens when women are in positions of elective power and how we can meaningfully, uh, rigorously and and nuancedly talk about, uh, about how women behave and the interests that they possess. Okay, we'll take the, uh, the question on the point uh, first. Um, Judy. Yeah, so um, yeah, the, 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 what's the meaning of peace? Um, I think, I, I don't think there's a definition per se in the UN of what peace is. It's, 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 it's basically our understanding of it is where... Um, where uh, normalcy prevails, and how do you measure normalcy in most situations? Uh, I would I would say, for instance, uh, that 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 children can go to school, that um, that um, that there is a, 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 a basic human security that that one can actually walk to the uh, you know a walk to to the store or walk to visit uh, family or neighbors without being harmed, you know. Um, so, so it's 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 not in the peace. It's not a kind of Buddhism peace uh, that we're talking about. Uh, but um, but semblance of normalcy. I, I don't know how else to define it. Um, you know, maybe maybe the UK government has a definition. I would love to hear what it is. But but for me, it's a very common sense uh, uh, normalcy, able to to get on with life. You know, I'm not saying that poverty is suddenly wiped out, even poor as you are, that there is the semblance of normalcy. Um, on the second question about women, yeah. Um, again, um, you know, I, I, I get in trouble a lot of times when I use the term innate, <laughs> innate quality, because of course women, you know, some, some, some women are the worst perpetrators. Look at the ones who perpetrate uh, um, uh, genital mutilation. Most of the times, they're the, the women of the, of the of the community. Um, but my point is simply that, as a generally, I mean, of course, you can challenge and knock down everything I say 
um, with, you know, with a counter perspective. But my point here is that if you accept that in most societies, women care about the family and the community, they're the ones who care a lot more, um, especially in these, in these uh, traditional societies, in these rural poor communities, in sending their kids to school and the nutrition of the children. If you agree that, that there is an element there that's true, that you can generalize without being overly romantic, that women do care for the family and the well-being of society and wanting to stop rape and wanting to stop wars, then, um, then, then ergo, one can say that if you do have um, that kind of women sitting in parliament, you know, in legislatures, that things will happen uh, as I had stated that 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 um, rape would be seen as a as a would be seen in the penal code as, as a crime, whereas before it wasn't. It was treated as something not very relevant to, to daily life, whereas the women saw it as extremely relevant. Um, and and, and in, in the case of Rwanda, when it came to land, so um, yeah, one can always come up with a counter argument, but if, but if you buy the basic premise that that women have this a general interest, a vested interest, maybe that's a better word than innate because I get in trouble when I say innate because, but a vested interest in keeping the family structure and keeping the community, then ergo all these things go along with it. But if you don't, if you don't buy that, then, then, I, then of course, what can I say? Okay, we've got a fo- literal forest of hands here. Um, we'll take, uh, we'll be fair, we'll take uh, one from the front and we'll take uh, one from the back as well, the gentleman with glasses, if I can. Um, this lady first. Thank you very much. Um, my question is more related to the sort of general idea of peace building. Um, and if you look at, especially societies coming out of conflicts, do you think it's defendable to allow sort of initial destabilization of the environment in order to pursue more longer term development and sustainable peace? Uh, gentleman there uh, with his hand up. Um, we'll actually take three here, and for fairness sake, uh, we'll have the lady there with the glasses. Without the glasses now. Just trying to confuse me with them again. Yeah, um, thank, thank you very much. Uh, the names you and Grant, I've worked in not UN um, operated, but UN administered um, operations in um, fragile states. Um, my question is how flexible is the internal UN administrative system in joining up peacekeeping and peace building? with particularly peace building with many other aspects of UN work because I noticed on the slide you said some integration not integration but some integration my uh, the, the reasons I have certain skepticism is I have doubts about the ethos of some career UN people a colleague of mine worked in peace building in Bosnia and uh, he told me he was with the UN administration head when word came in that two staff had been injured 
when their vehicle had hit a landmine and he thought he was a bit shocked because the administration's head immediately asked then did they have a travel authorization which would have travel travel authorization which would have meant the un would be responsible for their meat insurance cost for their care he thought the first question that should be asked was how badly hurt were they um both died of their injuries are you quite sure that the un has the right ethos and i would refer you to the film the whistleblower Okay, uh, and it's the lady there. If you keep your question short and introduce yourself as well, I'd be grateful. Um, hello, I'm Emily. I'm hopefully starting in Masters here, actually, in September. Um, but I want to touch on, you mentioned that the relapse of conflict brings about the problem of terrorism and drug trafficking, but... As your position in the peace-building sector of the UN, I wanted to know what your opinion was about maybe a larger perspective, perhaps on the global political system that might be having an impact on that, rather than the recurrence of terrorism, or the recurrence of um, conflict, sorry. It seems that peace-building seems to be more of a cure rather than prevention, and that may be why it isn't so sustainable. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that, really. You're saying to look more at prevention, is it? Well... I mean, you said yourself that the peace-building budget is $8 billion, and I'm pretty sure that the U.S. Army budget is astronomical oh, in comparison huge, yeah. to that. And it seems like a very minimal sum to be dealing with such a wide issue, and maybe terrorism isn't the result of peace-building, but a larger political system. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I, didn't, I still didn't get that. So. Well, I, th- I, th- I think there are a number of questions there, but the one I think we're, we're, we're quite interested in is um, the prevention element, the balance between prevention and response uh, to crises. Oh, okay. Have we got to do that right? Okay. A smorgasbord. Okay. Choo- choose what you wish. Okay. So... Um, Oh, yeah, whether some destabilization is actually good. Um, it depends whether I'm sitting here as a UN official or, or as, a, as an individual. Um, obviously, um, obviously, I have my own feelings that a, a lot, having seen so many of these situations, you can well understand why destabilization takes place. And deep in my heart, I cannot help but think, serves you right. You know, um, but speaking as a UN person, of course, um, the party line is always stabilization, human security, peace, and, and to stop conflict at all costs. So I don't know if that answers it, but, but I have to give you an official answer, which is that. Um, actually, there was one case I thought of lately where... where where I just wish that we had let, let, the, uh, let the insurgency happen. But anyway, I'll come back in a minute. I'm sure that'll come up again. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we, as we said, the problem are, you know, in so many of these countries, um, you know, if I'm allowed to speak like that, I mean, the bastards have been sitting in those, behind those wheels of power for so long, mm. screwing everyone up, so, duh. Are you prepared to say which country it was you had in mind? No. <laughs> Hopefully it's not Scotland. So. 
I'm not in your neck of the woods. Okay. I'm, I'm mainly in, in Africa and Asia. Um, how flexible is the um, was it peacekeeping and peace building? Uh, With other some? aspects of the UN agencies. I suppose it's a broader question in some ways um, for, from you. And um, how effective is the UN integrated approach? And how effective are you at bringing in peacekeeping, peace yeah. building, and other. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's, it's, it's never perfect. And, and you know, because you know our family squabbles within the UN system, you know, there's no secret. There's squabbles with, you know, my friends here from UNHCR. You know, the squabbles all the time with the humanitarians of, you know, this, this, uh, this, this whole fight between, um, between uh, what's the word for it? Um, free access, non-interference, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, uh, the political uh, imperative of, of trying to negotiate with all non-state actors, you know. So it's a big controversial thing between the humanitarians today and the um, and the um, and the political politicals, if you wish, of the UN that are negotiating, um, and and it came to a head in the case of uh, of Al Shabaab in Somalia. It really came to a head. Head. So, so, so yes, that it's not perfect at all, um, and and all this happens all the time, um, and it's not perfect. In you know, let's compare apples and apples. It's not perfect either in other uh, bilateral programs uh, trying to do the same things in the UK and the American bilateral programs. So, um, but the key is, um, can we learn from lessons? I think that's the key, and and and. I don't know. I don't know how I would I would answer that question. How well have we learned our lessons? You know, certainly um, on paper, I can tell you, uh, or even not in paper, in spirit. Um, you know, now uh, the Deputy Secretary General, Mr. Jan Ellison, heads a group called Rights Up Front uh, in 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 the in New York in the UN. Uh, basically, um, and and dealing the first case was the case of Sri Lanka. Uh, and what happened vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Tamils that were that were killed, um, and and basically, of course, the, obviously, what everybody has in mind is not to repeat the case of the Rwanda the Rwanda genocide and th those those words of General Dallaire uh, when when he was left high and dry. So so. You know now, but whether we can we can really do it, I mean, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. The the UN. You know, I mean, don't paint the picture of the UN as, as one, uh, one homogeneous, you know, uh, entity. We're not. We're nothing but, but a bunch of member states. And depending on the setting, these member states have more power at this point in time, and, or these member states have the power at this point in time. When it comes to Security Council, no question about it. The permanent five hold the keys to everything, to the budget, to mandates, etc., when it comes to other matters, sometimes the group of 77, the developing countries, by virtue of their size and their votes, uh, get actually uh, get the say. So you know, so 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 there's you know, so so when it comes to uh, question of mandates, uh, you know, why are we so silly? Why why are we standing by and letting uh, letting uh, soldiers walk through and rape women? I mean, that is the mandate the Security Council had told them, do not go there, do not go there, okay? So hopefully we're learning from that now. Like now, um, uh, for instance, uh, a few weeks ago, what's happening in southern Sudan with the Nuwa, the new conflict now between the Nuwa and the Dinka, 
um, you know, there was a, a huge group of uh, newers, I believe, that showed up in one of the UN compounds, not in Juba, but one of the uh, one of the um, sub offices in the compound, and and begged to be because the the other side was was in hot pursuit, and they wanted to be let through the gate. So here we go again. You know, it's almost like the Bosnia story, the Srebrenica and Rwanda all over again. And believe it or not, the representative opened the gates. And I, I forget how many thousands uh, came through, um, and, and, and the gates were shut, and of course the, uh, the, the attacking group could not enter. Maybe, maybe and, and she didn't get a slap in the hand, she, she, she was actually applauded. I just came from a meeting where all the SRSGs were, and she was actually applauded, she was fettered. Is it the word fettered or fettered? Yeah. So, um, so there, there is. It's not the change may not be as, as dramatic and drastic, but I think there's an, there is an element of lessons learned. I, I really think we cannot deny there's an element of that. Then, lastly, I think that was it. I think we can move over to this side now for some questions. Um, this side is almost barren, unfortunately. Uh, so we'll go for the lady here, and then we'll move back over here before finally ending over here. And there's some very keen people I can see. Um, we'll go for uh, that lady there, please. And over here, we'll go for um, that lady there and that gentleman in the yellowy green rugby shirt. I think. Okay, I'm colorblind. It's grey to me, but uh, it's, it's, it's you. Okay, so we'll start with you, please. Hi, yes, thank you for your talk. I um, am a master's student in international relations theory, and my question to you is um, in regard to the difference between peace building and state building. It seems that um, in a lot of our studies, the two terms tend to be somewhat overlapped, uh, or tend to overlap quite a bit. And um, if, in fact, there is no clear difference in terms of both of both of those um, terms, then is it is there a danger that the work of the UN in terms of peace building can um, become politicized and can actually have um, a greater um, political impact in these areas where there is conflict or um, relapse of conflict? Okay, and the lady in the second row, please. Um, I'm a student here at the LSE. I study international migration and public policy. Um, my question is in regards to the um, root causes and solutions that you uh, mentioned. Um, one of the root causes you said was hatred and ethnic division, and you proposed a national dialogue and reconciliation. However, uh, research has shown that focusing on this aspect, which is national dialogue and reconciliation, this is highly ineffective in wartime situations. Ineffective. Ineffective. And it's proposed that instead there should be direct protection of the population or monitoring of human rights violations. Um, I'm wondering what would you, uh, what you would think about this. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and the gentleman there, please. If you could introduce who you are as well, please. Um, hi, I'm no, Alex. not you. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, the gentleman in front of you. Hi, I'm a medical student at King's College. Um, I've got a short question. Without poverty, how much conflict would there be? Okay. Without, without? Uh, without poverty, how much conflict would there be? Um, actually, we will go to the gentleman behind you as well. Uh, out of the sake of generosity. Sorry. Um, I work with the organisation Peace One Day, and my question is regarding um, the challenges that the United Nations peace building forces um, face when the country that they're in is governed by a power that isn't necessary. Governed by? 
Uh, when the government of the country that uh, peace-building forces are in, for example, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, are very reliant on peace-building forces and are willing to give over a lot of power to uh, forces such as MONUSCO um, and are unwilling to uh, commit too many of their own resources to a problem. Okay. Can, can we expand that question slightly to um, y- you, you talk a lot in your literature about the importance of national institutions. What happens when there are no national institutions to partner with? How do you respond to those problems as, as well as in situations where, where governments are very weak and abrogate their real responsibilities uh, as well? So we've got four questions. Um, okay. I, I'm, my papers are getting all mixed up now. So if I miss something, will you remind will. me to do it? Um, maybe this last one first. Um, that's such a good question. You know, um, we just had a session recently on, on the CAR, Central African Republic. Um, I mean, the, there were, it's, not, it's not as if you're restarting the state. There was no state to start with. You know, that country has been, since the beginning, since independence, since the beginning, uh, been run by people who, who, who took over by coups. So it's been coup after coup after coup after coup. So there's really been no chance at state building. There, there has been complete lack of leadership. Uh, all people cared for were their own purses. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it happens way too often, um, the, the reason one aspires to power is basically to maximize the wealth of your family and your tribe or, or whatever. So, so in cases like that, that you know, you're so right. I wish you could help me a little bit because I, I, I'm really in a quandary here. What, what does one do? I mean, here then we have our, our donor communities standing around to say, but you can't stand idly by. Surely there's something you can do. So, so one has to think of, you know, the sort of, somebody was saying in our tea break just now, good enough solutions, good enough solutions, um, you know, um, do no harm solutions. I mean, you, you have to really lower your, your ambition to, to that kind of a language. What's a do no harm solution? What, what is something worthwhile trying and it's really not harming too much? And what is good enough? Um, so I'm really, I, 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 I wish you could give me some ideas. I really, you know, uh, in, in a case at the end uh, in Central African Republic, um, we're doing a few things and I might be being ashamed to tell you what they are. Uh, but, um, but on the other hand, um, there is the pressure to do something. But, but really, uh, in, in these states that are going down the, the route of failure, failure, you know, not, not, not just failing states, but downright failed states, I really wonder what, what one can do. I mean, what, what are you building? What institution? You know, if the political will is not there? So, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, poverty is certainly one of the drivers of conflict. But again, uh, we've been having a lot of this debate in-house within the UN. Uh, it's not necessarily the only driver, but certainly, um, and, and the thing is, with poverty, I'm, I'm not going to it because I'm not a social science professor, but there's a thing called rel- relative poverty and absolute poverty uh, uh, expectations in society. So you could have a society where people are less poor in absolute terms compared to other countries, but because the rich are so darn rich in that country, you're going to have that resentment. So is it, is it a case of absolute poverty or, or is it a case of relative poverty? So I think, um, I think that is an a, 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 a issue, uh, certainly very interesting, but 
I would say it is a driver, but not the only driver. Not the only driver. I would say um, it's a lot of it, actually, from what I see, is the perception of the ones who are poor. They're all poor. That, that the inequality is so huge, that the rich are so, so, um, so, so uh, insensitive to their needs and do not care one iota about their needs and are raping the wealth of the country for themselves and their families. That's when, that, that's when the rubber hits the road. Um, this other one is on... I think that was a... Uh, oh, yeah, natural, natural, uh, national dialogue versus... Well, if we could change that question slightly and abuse my prerogative as, yeah, uh, as the chairman. Um, it was a really interesting question. Root causes... Uh, sorry, um, national dialogue uh, and reconciliation, the first piece... Um, and the suggestion was that, that, that there are alternative ways... Protection of, of civilians. Uh, yeah, and, and if I could add to that, because it's something that I thought you, you were going to say was the missing piece in the peace-building puzzle, which is uh, the role of civil society. The second piece, how do you engage not only new techniques such as protection of civilians, but also the second piece, the engagement of civil society, in order to cement peace? Isn't there a danger that you're looking at the first piece in isolation? And you're missing the the bottom up approaches. Yeah, no, but I think um, I think no question about it. Both are necessary, but but it depends for what end that you're aiming at for that particular activity. Uh, protection of civilians. Uh, yeah, in fact, today most of the mandates of peacekeeping uh, missions is protection of civilians. Today, it wasn't so 10, 15 years ago, but today is protection of civilians. Uh, mainly again because of the uh, because of the uh, the the, the uh, Strepanitsa and Rwanda uh, episodes, um, but but I would say national dialogue is for a different end altogether. It's for a different reason altogether. It's um, it's 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 introducing something that seems so so commonplace to you because we're having here some kind of dialogue in societies that know no such thing. That no, no such thing, and certainly not with people in power. That, that to open up and to have an attempt to bring about people with some influence and power with others in civil society, of course not everybody in civil society, but say, let's say representatives of different groups to have this dialogue, it's, it's worth a try. I, I think basically that's all I can say, that, 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 the, the, the whole strategy behind that. And the final question was uh, peace building and state building. Uh, are there clear yeah. uh, differences and are there dangers? There, there are overlaps. Of course there are overlaps. Mm-hmm. But I hate to give you a very um, sort of false delineation. But I would see peace building as um, encompassing all those things that I had under SCHLEP, under S-C-H-L-E-P. That means a, a lot to do with uh, human security as well, a lot to do with security sector reform as well. Whereas I would see state building in a lot of these countries that we're talking about um, with, with basically starting the state. It's not even restarting. It's starting a state, starting state institutions, uh, having um, you know, state institutions that function, that some kind of compact, if you wish, with society, that if you introduce uh, a, a courts and, and prisons in this part of the, uh, the country, that, that it's understood that it is to, 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 is to, to have access to justice for, for a good majority of the population. So, um, so I see state building more as that as opposed to peace building, which is broader, I think, um, that, 
any activity, especially under SCH LEP, that can um, that can make the piece more durable. We've got time for two quick questions, and they're already slow. Three Hi. quick questions. The lady at the very back. Hi, I'm a student here at the LSC. I'm doing my master's in international relations. Um, my question was, how can you, how does the UN as an organization, uh, how can it effectively define democracy, um, and how can it monitor democracy outside of simply building institutions and setting up elections? And uh, it seems like the definition that you used in your lecture was you establish democracy, and by definition it works its way into liberalization and uh, marketization of said country, and it seems quite one-sided, as I think the first speaker said, it's more of a U.S. State Department perspective. Um, okay, and the gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kyung Shin Kim. I'm doing media communication and development here in LSE. Um, your presentation and the Q&A session remind me of the quotation I'd like. The UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. So um, my question is this. Um, I guess the role of, of media has a crucial role um, in um, peacekeeping operation. So what sort of um, communication strategies or programs, if you like, uh, does UN do in the field? Thank you. And then final question, if you can keep it very quick, please. Hi, my name is Zafia Ovia, and I'm a master's student here at the LSE doing development studies. Um, I just wanted to address your schlep theory. Um, when you talk about countries coming out of conflict, you said that they had to go through a healing process and confront each other so they don't relapse. However, when you consider a country like Nigeria, which is where I'm from, how do two different religious groups such as Muslims and Christianity come to confront each other when they have extremely different views? What do you say is the solution to that? Okay, thank you. Three fairly straightforward questions, isn't it? Okay. Um, first one, democracy. Um, in short presentations like that, of course, we use words like that. We put it up in graphs, and of course, behind each concept uh, begs a thousand questions on, on what actually one means. And and um, you, you know, if we are talking about elections. I really think the literature is now, and even the UN, you know, which is not exactly um, avant-garde in that way, um, it's starting to, to 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 use these terms that um, that that uh, you know the, the the liberal model of uh, of of your um, elections every four or five years is that the solution? You, you know, you know, you know, South Sudan. You, you, do you know what the adult literacy rate is in South Sudan? Thirty percent, thirty percent. I mean, you can list it. The num- the miles of tarred road. I mean, you can you can actually name. So, to think that you can uh, suddenly, you know, expect populations to stand in line and vote and understand what it means uh, when when they are so poor on top of it. You know, they don't even have their basic needs met. 
something is amiss in the picture. And, and I'm very happy to hear that within the UN, people are, is no longer, um, is no longer, what's the word for it? Um, not sacred, but uh, a blasphemy. It's no longer blasphemy for me to stand up and say, the election is not the answer. You know, how can it be with, with all these, with all these uh, factors, with this context? So, in fact, uh, recently we even have a debate about um, that maybe, maybe we are, you know, one, one could have different solutions. You could, have, you could have elections, but for a very short period, just two years, almost like a transition, while, we, while, we, while the international community starts doing all the civic education training, you know, setting up political parties and all that. Or we could adopt a more traditional system, bring in the elders, you know, let them run some transitional state for a while. While, while in readiness for, for this day, as opposed to, to putting all your hopes in this one event uh, that will take a few days, and then which is going to break apart in the seams anyway, especially when that context uh, prevails. Uh, and then the international community, you know, if I tell you this, you'll even score more, that you are paying for it for a lot of these elections. You know, and it costs a lot. We have to fly in ballot, ballot boxes to all parts of the country. Because I know roads, so you define monitors. So, so yeah. So it's, I, I think there's a lot of uh, self uh, self uh, questioning when it comes to this whole question of democracy without um, so many of the other things answered. You know, um, such as um, you know functioning states, etc. Then, um, what's the other one? Save communication humanity. strategy and what would a healing strategy look like uh, in yeah. practice and Pro- in Nigeria prob- in particular? Yeah. Probably, probably we don't do enough on that, but absolutely, absolutely. In fact, in fact, we know that it was the media strategy uh, in Rwanda of the, I'm um, sorry to say, the Hutus that brought about the massacres. I mean, the radio was blaring every morning that you have to do this today. You have to kill how many today? And so it keeps blaring, glaring, glaring. You get completely um, brainwashed and calculated. And that's 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 you know that it can do so much harm if it's if it's um, ill used, but on the other hand, um, that we know in these countries with with uh, remote populations with high uh, illiteracy rates and all that, you know, radio is one of the most one of the most inexpensive and most powerful tools to educate in a very objective way. And I just don't know why we don't do enough of it. I'm a big fan of it. So whenever we, I see that there is a gap, I try to, um, to ask people if there's such an interest. And, and then we try and implement a, a program that brings about. Uh, uh, but in the case of Sierra Leone, for instance, um, uh, that, that, um, you know, that actually is a big success story. The first public broadcasting station uh, was actually grew out of the UN peacekeeping mission. So very, very important and not to be overlooked. And then this last bit about healing strategy, the healing, the Muslims versus the Christians, and um, see, I, I think um, again here I'm not so don't quote me. I'm, I'm not speaking as a as a UN person, if I may, because you guys have pushed me to this point now where I, I cannot I can, cannot look myself with pride and, and answer you unless I I, I do it in, in an equally outrageous way. I, I'm one of those people who believe that um, that a lot of times religion is used as opium of the masses. I'm not a Marxist, but look at all these cases. How can you not see it? That people who have been living well, relatively well together, but for the ends that 
cruel, power-hungry people that have very little else at their disposal to manipulate the masses, to manipulate their people, except through spreading rumors and false rumors about religion. And because people are traditionalists, they're not so well-educated, they, 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 um, they, they, they fall for rumor uh, quite easily, that, that's what happens. I mean, what happened in, what's happening in Central African Republic today? You know, but there, the good news is, uh, the good news is actually the, the, the archbishop and the imam are the shining lights. They're the ones who are speaking out, but against the grain of the others who are manipulating the Muslims and the Christians. They are the ones going around and, and, and trying to preach um, that this is, this is not true, you know, there has to be tolerance. And actually, they're the ones also taking people from the other religion into their premises uh, when their lives are in danger. So, so that one, that is probably the only good news coming out of the Central African Republic today is this famous archbishop and the imam are doing what they're doing. But, um, but unfortunately, I, 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 I think, uh, I don't know, there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut, but... But, but, you know, but good education, bringing people, you know, giving people access to, to information, to knowledge, uh, so that they're not so easily brainwashed, uh, so that, you know, the most easy way to manipulate people a lot of time is through religion, uh, as we have seen through, throughout time. Um, so, so, development. Development's the key. Development. I'm rather pleased to hear it from the International Development Department at LSE. Um, this brings us to the end of um, what's been a remarkably frank and comprehensive set of insights into the functioning of the peace uh, building support office and the types of issues uh, that you, you and your staff confront on a daily basis. Um, I'd like to say thank you to all of you, A, for coming, B, for the wonderful questions, and I'd also like to say sorry to those of you that uh, uh, I wasn't able to give an opportunity to ask your questions to. But um, most of all, I'd like to say thank you to Judy Chang-Hoss for, for coming to talk to us this evening. Thank you very much. For